All right, all right, everybody. Uh, my name's Chris, I am an alcoholic. I love doing these things with Peter, I, I, I really do. Peter, Peter and I go way back, go back like 20 years, you know, do, doing, these, uh, doing these crazy things. And uh, I, just, I just have so much, I have so much fun. Uh, I have so much fun with him. With him. And he, he asked me to tell you a story, all right? So I'm gonna start off by telling you a story. Now, um, one of, you know, I did a lot of stupid things when I was drinking. Can you, can you relate to that? Like, you, you know, there's some hands, okay? I did some stupid things when I was drinking. One of the, thing, one of the really stupid things that I would do when I was drinking is I, I, would, I would do drugs, <laughs> you know? And uh, I mean, if you, if you handed me a drug, I'd eat it and then ask you what it was. You know, when I was drinking, you know, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't care. Am I going up or am I going down? <laughs> I, I just, I just, I was, I was, I was reckless. You know, I was Mr. Misadventure, you know, when I was out there drinking. And, and I grew, I grew up uh, in this area in northern New Jersey where we were about an hour outside of Manhattan, like when I was growing up. And so this is, I'm talking about the 70s now when everything was wild. It was the Wild West in the 70s. You know, it's just crazy time. And I hung out with the craziest people I could find. And anyway, we would go into New York City every weekend practically to see a concert. I'm telling you, we saw, we saw some of the great bands. We saw Led Zeppelin and we saw Pink Floyd. I mean, we would go, we would go into the city and just have uh, an amazing, an amazing time sometimes. And the, the ones I remember, at least. So, so I, we went into this city this one time. We all piled in a van and went into this city one, this one time. And, uh, and, and I, I think it was Fog Hat Wishbone Ash was the concert, right? And it, it was at one of the big theaters in New York City. And, I, and listen, I'm the kind of guy who drinks to go get drunk. Y you know what I mean? Like, if we're going to go drinking, I'm going to start drinking before you. And so, so I'm good and drunk by the time we get to New York City, as well as some of my friends are, right? And we're sitting down, and the music is playing. And my buddy comes back from the bathroom. Uh, John comes back from the bathroom, and he goes, Hey, man, they're selling LSD in the bathroom, man. You want to buy some LSD and do some LSD? And I'm like, sure. Let, yeah, let's do that, you know? So we go into the bathroom, and we buy LSD from, from these, these disreputable-looking characters. And, uh, and we go back, and we sit down, and we let, like, one song go by. And we're like, are you high? No, I'm not high. We must have got ripped off. Well, there's other people in there. Let's go back. Let's buy some more. And so we go back in the bathroom and we buy some more LSD off some other people and we eat that. And then we go back and we sit down and we let a couple more songs go by and we convince each other again, we must have gotten ripped off, let's go back and try it one more time. So we go back and we try it one more. Now, if you know anything about LSD, sometimes it takes a half an hour, four, 45 minutes for it to hit you, right? So by, by the time it's toward the end of the show, we're like this. I mean, I mean we, are, we are on the edge of sanity, right? Now, now, if you don't know what, like, taking too much LSD is like, uh, I'll explain it to you like this. How about having Disneyland injected into your eye with a turkey baster? That, that's what it's like. It's just, it's just nuts. 
And, 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 and so, so not, we're really, really, we're really, really freaked out. And finally the lights come on, uh, you know, the show's over. And we're, we're like, the show's over, must stand up, must, must walk out, you know? And so we're all like filing out, you know, and, and we all get in the van and I curl up like in a fetal position because I'm just, I'm this close to just, you know, losing my mind. And, and now if you're in New York City, what has to, if you, and you're going back to New Jersey, what you have to do is you have, you have to go through a tunnel, right? It's the Lincoln or the Holland Tunnel, right? So what it is is it's like eight lanes, six lanes, four lanes, two lanes, tunnel. And we're heading down toward the tunnel, and somebody in the front of the van goes, hey, man, we'll never fit, right? So... So some of us start moving forward and we're looking out the window and he's right. It's a mouse hole, you know? We gotta get out of here. Yeah, so, so it took us 45 minutes to back out of the Lincoln Tunnel. It, it, was, it was really an unnerving experience. We, we, had to, uh, we had to take the bridge. But l listen, things like that were happening to me you know, weekend after, you know, a daily basis, like just crazy stuff like that. And you would think that I would recognize that quite possibly I'm not making good decisions in my life, right? No, that's not what I thought, you know? And, and if you mentioned it to me that maybe I was just being a little crazy, I, I'd say, it's none of your business, you know? you know? Back off, dude. Who are you talking to? So, so there was, there was, there was a, a delusion that was already firmly implanted in me that I could not see how much trouble I was in when I was in it. And I recognize that with people who come into Alcoholics Anonymous. There's one thing I'm absolutely sure of. They're in more trouble than they think they are. You know, that's the one thing that's true of everybody that walks through the door. They're in more trouble than they think they are. And we have to come to terms with that, you know, and we're, we're talking about some of, some, of the, some of the revelatory things that we have to uh, come to terms with uh, within ourselves, uh, you know, this weekend. We're, we're going through some of this stuff. Now, here's something I really, really believe, and I don't, I'm not expecting you to believe it. I've just come to terms with this, and I truly believe it, and it's this. I'm not responsible for any of that crap that happened when I was drinking. Now, let me explain what I mean by that, all right? I was being driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-consciousness, delusion, I was being driven by that. I'm powerless over alcohol. I don't have the power to, to not drink, and I don't have the power to control it when I'm drinking. And I'm prey to these character defects. How could I have done anything except what I did? So, so, so this guilt and this shame and this remorse that I brought into the rooms is misplaced. It's misplaced. Now, here's the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, though. Although I don't believe I was responsible, I must be accountable. Alcoholics Anonymous tells me I need to be accountable for all this stuff. I need to come to terms with, yes, I caused damage. I must do 
the best I can to repair that damage. Yes, I screwed up relationships and I acted abysmally, and I need to do the best that I can do to make those things right. That's accountability. And I, I believe that I'm not responsible, but I need to be accountable. And, and that's, that's just the way I believe today. Because alcoholism was something that was bigger than me. Alcoholism had me. You, you know what I mean? I, you know, I, now, now Peter, co Peter covered this stuff in a great way. I, I, you know, I, love, I love the way he brings the spirituality of, of this, this program you know, right, right to the forefront. He talked about the fifth step. Now, now, I've reviewed my resentments. I've reviewed my fears. The fear, the evil and corroding thread, the fabric of my existence is shot through with it. It causes chains of circumstances that blow up my spot. You know, this fear. And, and what, it, what they're really talking about is they're talking about an overwhelming sense of anxiety. That's what they're talking about when they're talking about fear. They're talking about not feeling comfortable with ourselves and our environment, not feeling comfortable in a, in a thousand different ways, just, just wanting to avoid situations that I'm uncomfortable with. And how fear hurt me was fear kept me from being where I needed to be, doing what I needed to be doing. It just did it. And that the fabric of my existence was shot through with it. It created the, the, the space in my life for all this misfortune and, and un, unmet you know, uh, ambition. Uh, there, there was things that I wanted to do. There was, there, there was a type of person I wanted to be. I, you know, this, this self-centered fear never let me, never let me you know, get, out, get out of my own way to be able to do that stuff. That fear must be mastered. It must be mastered for us to really be what, what God wants us to be. And then, and then the harms to others. The, the, the sex harms, that's how Bill lays it out in this book. Uh, uh, it, it, was, it was awful the way I treated people. And, and it wasn't because I didn't care about them. You know, I, you know, I would fall in love with some woman and then completely destroy her life. You know, uh, ladies, I wasn't restraining order guy, but I was pretty close to that. You, you know what I mean when I got involved with you? You know, I would, I would swoop in, I'd, 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 I'd dress well, you know, I'd show up, you know, clean and nice. And in five minutes, there'd be cops and, you know, you're, I'd insult your mother, you know, it, it, it was just, you know, it just turned bad all the time. And, and, and it was very difficult for me to take ownership of the disaster. You know, because it's inconvenient for all this stuff to be my fault. So, so I didn't think it was my fault. <laughs> I thought it was your mother, you know, or something, you know. And, and, and what it was was I was creating this maelstrom of disaster in, in every single relationship that I was in. I need, to, I need to look at this. I need to share this stuff with somebody. And then I need to become willing. I need to become willing to have God remove all these things that I find objectionable. You know, now, now when I first was exposed, you know, I, I did a fourth and a fifth step, and then it was time for me to do my sixth and my seventh. And I did this back when really there was no real big book literacy in my area for, for, for this step work. 
you know, I remember doing my first uh, four step and my first fifth step, and then really going about the business of, you know, dealing with my character defects. And uh, and like like Peter like Peter was sharing, they, the, these character defects are are bigger than me. Okay, if I could have done better, I woulda. And and, and these char these character defects were all all encompassing. And but I saw that becoming willing to have God remove them, and then asking God to, to remove them in two paragraphs and then moving on seemed under, irresponsible to me. Like, isn't, isn't there work I need to do? Isn't there, like, character defects for dummies that I have to read, you know, or something? Isn't there some, something that I need to do? And, and I've, come to terms, I've come to terms with it like this. I become willing to have God remove these defects of character, and then in a state of humbleness, of in defeat, I go to God and I ask God to remove these defects of character because there's nothing else. There's nothing else. You know, why isn't there more in the big book on six and seven? Because there's nothing else. Now I need to become willing to be accountable, like I was talking about before. I need to put a list of people and institutions together that I have harmed. And I need to become willing to make amends to those, to those, uh, uh, those individuals and those institutions. That's my next step. I move out of that prayer, God, take all of me, good and bad, I move out of that prayer into a list. That's, the, that's how the program lays out, and I put it into the list. Now, now why? Why? I, there's one story that, that, that I tell a lot, and it really, it really emphasizes the reason, you know, why the next step is accountability after giving all this stuff to God, now I'm accountable. And this story is, I'll, t I'll tell it now. We just lost this individual uh, about six months ago to cancer, unfortunately. What a great guy he was. But, but this, is, this is like 1994 uh, in, in uh, New Jersey. And I'm, I'm all, you know, I've gone through the steps, and now I'm starting to sponsor a bunch of lunatics. And there was this guy that showed up in the meeting. Uh, and we didn't know who he was for a while. He was so shot. He couldn't talk, but he was showing up in the meetings, right? You, you know, they'd go around the room. My name's my name's so and so. My name's so and so. He'd just go, you know. I mean, he, he was literally so shot out he was rendered mute for a long time. And you know, I came to find out later he had a Percocet addiction and, an, and with alcohol that was like, you know, it could have killed three elephants what this guy was taking. But anyway, he came. He came in. He came in so shot out. And uh, when he first started to, to, to talk, uh, he came up and he asked me to sponsor him. And, and you know, I did uh, because I was sponsoring the lunatics then. And, uh, and, and you know, I'm, I'm working with him and, you know, slowly bringing him over my house, sitting down with the book Alcoholics Anonymous, going through the book, you know, where there's an instruction, you know, uh, explaining the instruction to him and making sure he's clear on that and then having him go. That's the assignment. Go out and, and, and do that instruction. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, go, he's going through the steps and he, he gets through a bunch of the steps. 
And we would go to meetings together. The, the 90s were a great time for fellowship. You know, people in here that were in AA in the 90s know what I mean. It was a time of fellowshipping. You know, we'd all go to meetings in a car together and there'd be sober softball and everybody'd go to the diner, you know, and we were all dating each other and marrying each other and going to each other's funerals and weddings. I mean, it was fellowship, right? And, uh, and, and so I'm driving to a meeting with them one time and we stopped, we stopped at a convenience store to get uh, some coffee because we knew who was making the coffee. And, and, and so we're, we're walking out of the convenience store with, uh, with the coffee, and I see him do this really quick. You know, they, they had a rack of cigarettes up front by the cash register. He got one, and, and we're out the door before I really realized what I just saw. And I go, I go, wait a minute. I go, did you just steal a pack of cigarettes? And he goes, no. I go, I go, wait a minute, let me, let me rephrase that. Did you grab a pack of cigarettes as we were going out the door without paying for them? And he goes, yeah. I go, well, how's that not stealing? He goes, he goes, dude, it was the rack in front. I go, what do you mean by that? He goes, he goes you're a chump if you don't take those. The hell they budget for that stuff, right? And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Sponsor Summit, Sponsor Summit, you know? And, uh, and listen, he was, he, was, he was motivated and he was trusting in me and he was following direction. He was willing to go to any lengths, this guy. So after some discussions, what, we, what he did was he put down a list of all the stores that, he, that he's stolen from like that. And he was doing okay. Believe it or not, he was doing okay at that period of time. He had a big mason, era, mason contra contracting business. So he had, a lot of money was going through his hands. So he took out these legal envelopes and he filled about 20 or 30 of them with money, like real money. And he went around to each of these stores that he, can, he could remember stealing at, and he would go up to the manager. My name is so-so, you know, I stole from you, you know, I'm an alcoholic, I, I can't, if I, I, for me to be able to overcome drinking, I gotta straighten out my piss, and I'm going, we need to pay you back, and you know, here's the envelope. And uh, he did that, he did that at 20 or 30 stores. Now the question I would ask is, do you think he steals cigarettes anymore? You know, there, there, is, there is a synergy within step eight and nine that works with steps six and seven. And it's about our becoming accountable for our behavior. There's what God does. And God removes. And God relieves. And God changes. But that doesn't mean we don't have some accountability and, and, and some action that we need to take as we move through these 12 steps. And the action that's indicated for us is to become willing to make amends for where our character defects have caused harm and then actually go out and make amends for where our character defects have caused harm. If there's any change I could make in Alcoholics Anonymous, if I was given an opportunity to improve anything, I would put the word actually in front of the ninth step. 
because I was in meetings until the cows came home. I was in 12 and 12 meetings my first 10 years. There were no real big book meetings. It was all 12 and 12 meetings. And I can't tell you how many people shared on amends. And, and if you had experience actually making amends, you knew it was just fluff that you were hearing. You know, like, I've, I've had a change of heart. Well, have you actually made direct amends? Well, not in, not, you know, you know only in theory, you, you, you know. Uh, uh, you know, I was told, I was told I didn't need to make these amends by a sponsor who didn't make his amends. You, 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 know, you know, so, so uh, okay, that's fine, but, but uh, you, you know, I, listen, I'm for anything and everything in Alcoholics Anonymous, I am. But if you're in real trouble from alcoholism, you might really need to do this. You, you know, you, for, to, for survival, you might really need to do this. And I've sponsored guys. I've sponsored guys who, until they got through their amends, they, could, they, they couldn't be released from alcohol. You know, so uh, it depends on how sick you are, you know, with this alcoholism thing. So, you know, my personal experience with amends, um, I've done a number of them. Uh, most, of, most, of my, most of my serious amends were taken care of back in the 90s. That was like, you know, the states and the police and all the money and all that stuff, most, most of the big ones. But that doesn't mean I haven't, I haven't stopped making amends. You know, there's a, there's, in, I'm jumping ahead, but there's in the 10th step, we, we need to be awake and present to opportunities for amends as we go through our day, we, you know, that's how we really, really should try to live. The 10th step is pretty clear on all that. But I've got, I've got a couple of amends, I'm, and I'm going to share those, and then it'll be time to eat. Now, so I, so I got married uh, 12 years ago. We just had our wedding anniversary, and that, that story is really cool. This was somebody I was really close to in the 70s, and she was somebody I took in to see Led Zeppelin, and Yes, and, and The Grateful Dead, and, and Charlie Daniels, all, these, all these, these great concerts, right? She was 15, and I was 19, so there just wasn't any hanky-panky, you, you know, that I, I, you know, that, that you just wouldn't, wouldn't do that. But we were really good friends. She was a freshman in high school, and I was a senior that had stayed back, and we just became really good friends. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I adored this girl. She was the cutest damn thing, you know? And I just loved having her around. And I always had a girlfriend, she always had a boyfriend, and, and that was as it was. But we were really, really close. Now, what happened was I went off to college. I'm still, uh, you know, I went to college for three and a half years in South Florida, and I'm, I'm still really proud of the six credits I got. <laughs> now, now uh, I went off to college, and she moved, and that was back before any way of keeping track of somebody. You know, you couldn't find somebody if they moved back then. You'd have to call, a, you'd have to look through 25 phone books, you, you know, just, just in New Jersey to try to find somebody. So we, we, we disappeared from each other's lives for about 30 years. Facebook pops up, right? And all of a sudden I see, I see on Facebook, Andrea, Andrea Stancotti. Oh my God, I've been looking for her for 30 years. So, so I, send this little, I send this little message to her, you know, and she says, oh my God, how are you doing? I thought you were dead. You know, because she really did. She, th she thought I was dead. She knew how I drank. And, uh, 
And I go, no, everything's cool. You know, we get together for coffee about two weeks later, and within a month, we're living together because that's what alcoholics do, right? She, you know, she, she had a house, you know, that she was renting, and every single time I went up there, I was bringing more stuff. And, you know, finally she says, do you live here now? <laughs> you know, I'm like, I guess. But it was, but it was so organic, and it was, it was like, you know, it was like hanging with a best friend. And uh, you know we ended up getting married about a, a year later, and I can't tell you how how, uh, how happy I'm. But but you know living with an alcoholic is not easy. Okay, even an alcoholic with 30 years of practicing these principles, we are not easy. We are a lot. You know what I mean? We are a lot. And uh, and, and the it it comes to me in meditation uh, that I I need to make I I need to just. Do a general amends with her. It's been about five years since we've really had any, you know, serious talk about about my uh, my faults or my mistakes or you know the, th the the harms that I've caused. So I sat down with her and I had a few things, you know, that I shared with her. Understand, I didn't even think I needed to do this because it was my wife, right? Like you know, we're together all day long, all the time. Well. It, it did, you know. It wasn't. It wasn't something that I intellectually thought I needed to do, but it was something that came out of spirit and meditation. And I sat down and I did that amends. And she says, "I've never felt closer to you than now. Thank you so much. You don't know how you needed to do that, <laughs> because we're a lot. You know what I mean? And so, so that's a current amends that happened. Uh, that happened not long ago. Here's another one." I was, I was running buddies with this guy for about 10 years, from about, from, about 2010, from about 2000 to about 2010. He was a running buddy, and I got him involved in every debacle, every AA debacle I could think of. And we'd just run around. You know, I'd call him up, and I'd say, hey, we're, you know, we're doing a radio show. You're going you're gonna to be my assistant DJ. And he'd go, yeah. You know, we're going to start a business. Yeah. He, he was like one of those guys, right? He was always in, always in for it. And... Uh, and one day, he, he stopped returning my calls, you know? He stopped returning my calls. And, and for a couple of years, I continued, because we, we were like this, right? For a couple of years, you know, I continued to, uh, to reach out to him. And finally, I just kind of gave up, thinking, thinking he would, you know, something was going on, and he just, he just didn't want to be hanging anymore, you know? And then it came to me in meditation one time that I, I need to sit with him. I need to sit with him, and I need to get clear. I need to get current, and I need to get clear with him. And uh, I, I asked him for an appointment. I said, it's going to be a ninth step. And uh, he said, yeah, meet me at the Dunkin' Donuts in Dover. So I meet him at the Dunkin' Donuts in Dover. Now, I had a few things, you know, like, like on my amends list that, that I, I figured I'd fallen short with. But it was the question I asked afterward, you know, is there any other harms I'm not clear on? Is there any other way I hurt you that I have not mentioned? And he said, yeah. He goes, you blew up the AA group that I was leading. He goes, you, you moved a whole bunch of people into, into the building, you know, when, when we weren't there. And I go, what? I go, no, I didn't. <laughs> you know, because it wasn't me. What had happened was he was leading an AA group, and, it, you know, it had gotten small, three, four, five people, and some other group down the street thought that it was closed, talked to the pastor, 
And he came to do his AA group, and all of a sudden there was 30 people in there, and it's a whole new group. And he thought I did it. And I, I said, I had, I had, honest to God, I had nothing to do with it. And so there was a misperception. There was a miscommunication. And he believed me because it was true what I said. And we're, we're now back like this. He comes over. He comes over at Christmas. He comes over at Easter. He's part of our family again. Now, this is another thing. Intellectually, I didn't do any harm. But there was something wrong with the relationship. You know, I had, to, I had to come to terms with that, and I had to take the action to sit down and get current with this individual, and I'm so glad that I did. And it is noon, so let's all meet back here about 1 o'clock. What do you say? Thanks.